Go ahead and grab a Bible and open with us to Hebrews chapter 10. It does seem crazy to cover this entire chapter in, in, one, in one sitting because there's so much going on here. It's just a massive chapter, but we are going to try our best to cover the whole, the whole thing, and we'll take it sort of in parts as we go. The Word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 10, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year to make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies could be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The word of the Lord. So just to kind of give a heads up of how, where this chapter is heading, um, you've probably heard of the carrot and the stick analogy. So you've got the donkey, you're trying to motivate the donkey to go forward. So you put the stick in front of the donkey, the donkey likes, the, the, I mean, excuse me, put the carrot in front of the donkey, don't put the stick, <laughs> that will, the stick will not motivate the donkey. Put the carrot in front of the donkey, the, the donkey likes the carrot, starts moving towards it, and then if it kind of gets sidetracked, you have the stick to kind of swat it on the back, right? So it's, you've got both positive and negative motivation, right? You've got, you've got something really good to go to pursue in front of you, and then you've got something not so fun that's sort of pushing you from, from the other side. And the author of Hebrews is a true pastor. He's very pastoral in this chapter, and he holds out an incredible positive motivation, which is Jesus and all that he is for us in the gospel. And it is just incredible in front of us to say, this is worth sticking with it. This is worth enduring. No matter what suffering comes our way, this is worth all the suffering. And then I will just warn you now, this will come later tonight, 
But man, there is about as severe a warning as you will ever find in the Bible in this chapter. I mean, it is hellfire and brimstone before this chapter ends, quite literally. Uh, He ends by saying it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is the negative reinforcement on the other side. That's the stick saying, listen, Jesus is so much better than anything else in this world you could gain or lose. Pursue Jesus. But for those who wander and drift from him, there is also a terrifying fate and future that is just for God to give to those. So that's kind of the framework. Lots of positive stuff at the beginning, toward the end, some pretty heavy-duty negative reinforcement on, on, on the author's part. So just be aware that there's a lot of glories and then there's a lot of horrors in this text, and we need all of it to have a fully, full, fully orbed uh, understanding of this text. So uh, as we jump in here, let's just kind of review the first four verses. I'll read them again real quick. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year uh, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to... They, Otherwise, would they not have been ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there are, is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, Scott or Fred, what, what, some opening thoughts about this, this idea here with the, the, the uh, shadow and the true form there. Well, the shadow, I, I think, is a, a, a pale reflection we, we talked about. I don't think it's necessarily the Plato um, reflection on the wall, but uh, just a, a pale reflection because he says it's a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form. And the true form is the reality. True form is Jesus. Uh, and, 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 and the law was but a shadow of that. It was pointing towards Jesus. Uh, but that same shadow that the law uh, could never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So that was one of the, the problems with the law. It was pointing to Jesus, it was pointing forward, but it could not accomplish uh, the, the task of perfecting those who would draw near. And this is all about drawing near. You know, the, 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 the tabernacle from the beginning was a mystical kind of place with fire and smoke and, and all that kind of mirrors, I guess. And, and, and the people themselves could not approach God. They had to go through the high priest, and he only once a year could go into the innermost place. So this is all, uh, uh, but there's good things. Etern- uh, uh, Hebrews uh, 9:11 uh, says, eternal redemption and purifying our conscience from, from dead works. So those are the good things that are coming. That's great. Scott? Yeah, I mean, I think that the author of Hebrews, is, he's repeating himself, uh, which he's done this already throughout the letter, but I, I think that that's helpful for me just because it means that we need repetition before we sort of get things. We, we need multiple times to be able to get it sort of intellectually, and we probably even need more times to apply to our lives. So he's repeating, so it's just even in discipleship or whatever, we need to just keep repeating ourselves. I think about the book club. I mentioned this one time at a retreat with Bo Beck, and I talked about grace and how grace is power in the Christian life. It's not just pardon. And I, I did it the first night. I talked about it, and I thought, okay, they've all got it. We can move on to the next thing. And then I realized the next time, I was like, wait a minute, they don't have this yet. And so I, coming up with creative ways to keep kind of saying the same thing. And after maybe over a year, Bo was like, 
I think I'm finally getting how important grace is in the Christian life. So we do need repetition. I think that's important. I love the, the, the laws, the shadow of the good things. I love that Piper illustration with the kid in the grocery store. He's holding on to his mommy's hand. His mom leaves, and then he turns around, and all he sees is cereal. His mom's not there anymore. He starts to, to panic. He runs to the end of the aisle, and he sees the shadow on the ground of his mom. Looks just like his mom. Fills him with such hope. But he's not going like, to go down and hug the shadow. No, then the mom comes around the corner, and that's the thing that gives him such joy. The kid runs into the arms of, of, of the mother. Well, Christmas is Jesus coming around the corner. And so it's like, why would we go back to the shadow? They're all pointing forward to Jesus. And then I just love verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. One commentator said animals could scarcely provide atonement. They didn't realize why they were slain and had no consciousness of the significance of their death. They were unwilling animals that were being sacrificed for the willing sins of human beings. But then think about Jesus, just contrast. I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but one pastor said Jesus willfully offered up himself. He knew exactly what he was doing. It was a sacrifice not of an unwilling animal. It was a sacrifice of the Son of God who had come to take our nature in order that he might bear our sin. So again, Jesus is better than the sacrificial system. Why would you go back to the sacrificial system since Jesus has come? Yeah, and I, I've used this maybe a couple years ago, but uh, when I got my license renewed, this would have been in 2016, if you're wondering. And um, so I, when I, I think this was while I was at the DMV, they actually gave me this little printout. Have you seen the little paper thing? This is not a real license, it's just a piece of paper, and they fold it up, and you, you, know, you sort of have it in your wallet. And so if I would have gotten pulled over before August 20th of 2016, this was my license, right? So if a police officer would have pulled me over, I would have given this to the officer, and let me ask you, is this a real license? No, right? I mean, it, it's just a piece of paper, right? But did it, was it a stand-in for a real license? Yes. And did it count as a real license during these couple of months? Yes. So before August 20th, 2016, this would have been counted as a real license had I been pulled over. But was it a real license? No, that's, it's a piece of paper. I was waiting for this to come in the mail, the real license, right? So when this license shows up, I put this in my wallet. If I get pulled over now and give the piece of paper to the officer, does that count? No, because this never was a license. It was there in the meantime. It was a shadow of the substance. It was pointing forward to something that was in the mail on the way. And the sacrificial system is not real atonement. It never was real atonement, but it counted because if you put your faith in God, the God of Israel, and you offered sacrifices according to the law, you were forgiven. Of, I mean, when you died, you, you experienced forgiveness of sins. Why? Not because the blood of bulls and goats did anything. This is not real, but because this was done in faith that something was coming in the mail, right? Christmas was coming. The, the true sacrifice was coming, and then John says, behold the Lamb of God, the real one who takes away the sin of the world. And so now, if you have Jesus, if you, I'm, I'm sorry for the pathetic illustration between Jesus and a driver's license, blasphemous illustration, but if you have the real thing, if you have the real thing, the thought of going back to this is just foolishness, and it's not going, it will no longer be a license, right? So if you turn from Jesus' sacrifice and you go back to animal sacrifice, they no longer do anything, right? Because they were only there as a substitute for Jesus pointing forward, forward to him. Once he comes in the mail, once he's there, you cannot go backwards in redemptive history. You'll lose the whole thing. You won't have any forgiveness because to go backwards is to miss the whole, the whole point of what Jesus did. You better take that out of your wallet, though. In case <laughs> I may accidentally give that to a police officer. I keep it just to make that illustration. I use it with high school students. I use it every year at least once. I'm like, so they're like, oh, the paper license illustration. It's back, ladies and gentlemen. So... 
All right, let's, let's go ahead and jump to verse 5, uh, verses 5 through 7. Can you read that, Scott? Yeah. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Just right there. Or yeah. keep Just real quick. So um, this is one of those tricky places where um, in the Old Testament, he's quoting Psalm 40. If you go back and read Psalm 40, we won't do that right now, but uh, that's a Psalm of David. And in that Psalm, David talks about how bad he's sinned recently. And he says these words, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but uh, in the Hebrew, you've dug out my ears. Quite literally, you dug ears for me, uh, which you're like, what does that mean? And then why does he say body here? Well, just real quick. Um, the, you know how sometimes we'll pray and we'll say, bless the hands that prepared this meal? Right? What we mean is not the, like, it's like not the Adams family, right? With the hand walking down the table. We're not saying bless the hands, disembodied. When we say bless the hands, what do we mean? Bless the, yeah, the person, the people who made the food. In that case, the hands stand in for the whole person. And in the original Psalm, it was ears that were being referred to, but that's a stand in for the whole person. In other words, David said, Lord, help my ears to hear and be obedient to your word. And if he, if his ears hear and obey, guess what else obeys? His body, the body, right? So this is not a false translation issue. This is the author of Hebrews knows that having ears open to the Word of God means your whole body will follow. And so that's why he quotes it the way he does. And he sees here that this psalm is not merely about David, but it's also pointing to David's greater son, Jesus himself. So thoughts on this uh, psalm? The right, he's, as, you, as you mentioned, he's quoting from Psalm uh, 40. My, my LXX says, you've not given me an open ear or something like that, some words to that. So he's given him a body. Um, first, the, the old repetitious sacrificial system was removed to wait, make a way for the new one. Uh, once for the sacrifice uh, of Christ who had obediently done God's will. So it was God who said, and it's not that the, the old system was wrong because it was God who designed it. And I think that's, we can easily sometimes in Hebrews get that impression, but it was intended to point us towards the one that, that could perfect us for all times. And so uh, this, this Psalm 40 is, is, is um, a preview of Christ, a preview of the new covenant when it uh, would make way and take away uh, all of our sins. So that's pretty exciting, once for all. Yeah, I mean, two just quick quotes on that, on like sacrifice, verse, verse 5 again, uh, or middle, where he's quoting Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. Uh, Tom Schreiner said Jesus was not being asked to make the offerings mandated in the Old Testament. Instead, God had prepared a body for Jesus. In other words, Jesus was being asked to give himself as a sacrifice to God. Jesus' mission isn't to bring animal sacrifices to the altar, but to do something profoundly different. And just even though you just see the humility of Jesus, and I, I was moved by just and reflecting on that, even the way the author of Hebrews looks back at Psalm 40, sort of he sees it in a Christological light, and just it's just a powerful thing. This is what sort of Jesus' as incarnation is, is thinking, I guess. It's moving kind of to think on that. Uh, in, in this, um, I guess this may be six, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Uh, then you would, you might ask the, rhetorically, you know, why then the, the offerings? 
Well, again, it's, it's, it's to point us towards. We, the, right, he answers the question in four, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But it, we need someone to take away sins, and that, that is Jesus. So that's what Psalm 40 is forecasting. Um, j- just to get technical here for a second with Psalm 40. So Psalm 40, strictly speaking, is not a prophecy of Jesus in one sense. It's David talking about himself. Okay, so follow me for a second. Because the author of Hebrews applies Psalm 40 to Jesus, but it's not per se about Jesus, it's about David. You get the thing here? This is one of those problems where like, what's going on? So in the very Psalm, remember the person writing says, I've sinned greatly. You can look at the Psalm, I've I've sinned horribly, like my sins have almost overwhelmed me. And then he says, God delivered me from muck and mire. And he says, now in response, God doesn't really want animals. He wants my life devoted to him. And I'm going to give my whole life to him. And David is talking about David. There's no question about it. He's Jesus did not sin. He's not talking about, he's talking about David. So how can the author of Hebrews, and this happens all over the New Testament, doesn't it? They take a, a, a text about David or something, and they go, see, Jesus fulfilled that. And you're like, Jesus didn't sin. What does Psalm 40 have to do with Jesus? And the, the, the answer is, David is a type of his son, Jesus, right? He's, he's, he foreshadows Jesus. So things that happened to David and things that David did in obedience to God foreshadow his son but not when David sins. So that part of the psalm that says, I sin, does not point to Jesus. It points to David because David's the sinner. But the points where he's doing the right thing in honor of God do foreshadow his greater son, Jesus. So I'll put it this way. Now that Jesus has come, it does help us understand more deeply how to read the Old Testament profoundly. Um, It's not just about David. It's also about Jesus all over the place in the Old Testament. So we we need to have that rich redemptive historical view of the Old Testament when we're reading especially the Psalms. Well, Psalm 51, uh, verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And that, that was true for the Old Testament as well. The, 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 the worshiper who came with a, a, a bad heart uh, was not acceptable to God, uh, even though he'd offered a lamb or a goat. I mean, it was, it was the heart transformation that God was looking for, I think. Verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Just real quick, throw out some theological terms. You know these words, sanctification, right? So there's two kinds of sanctification, at least in the New Testament, probably more, but you've got uh, positional sanctification, and then you have progressive sanctification. So you ready? The moment you become a Christian, you have which one already, all the way? Positional. Positional sanctification. So that means you are set apart by the Holy Spirit in, the, in Jesus. You are now made holy in Christ. You're a saint a holy one, right? So the moment you believe, you are sanctified fully and forever. It is finished. It is done. Just think about what you said. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Amazing grace. Yes, that is true. And so you you have full holiness in Christ the moment you trust Christ, but then progressive sanctification has only begun. And that is a lifelong battle where we are fighting our sin like, like every single day, right? Every single day my flesh wants to take over the controls of my life. Can you relate to this? Every day, you know, just 
irritability, prayerlessness, I mean, just all of it, just a swirl of ugly wants to take over the controls every day, and we've got to fight by God's grace to destroy that. But this is not about progressive sanctification, this verse. Um, you know, when we use the word, we normally mean it like growing. But very often in Scripture, it's a once and for all, you are set apart and you are holy in Christ. Uh, thoughts on that, Fred? I struggle with this, you know, uh, that's why Paul uses the word saint to the saints. Yep. Uh, that's, that's positional sanctification. I mean, because then he'll write to them about what they need to do to grow in Christ. He has a doctrinal section most of the time in his letters and then an application. The application part is how you can work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Mm. In other words, sanctification. Yes. Anything, Scott? Yeah, I mean, it's the same, the amazing part that Fred said, like we are like positionally holy. And one guy was saying that it should cause amazement or he said something like that. But he was saying we are holy because Christ has won God's pleasure with the perfect obedience of his own life. And then he said, how shall we live? Having been made holy unto God by the saving work of Christ. What's the application? And he quoted Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brother, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. I mean, that truth should drive us to, to want to be holy in practice. Just the, the truth positionally should, should drive practical. Holiness. Yes, wanting to become who we are in Christ. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, verses 11 through 14. Fred, could you read those? 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Anything on that? That, to me, that's the pivotal verse in the whole chapter 10. For... for Let's read it again. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I think of the juxtaposition of the, of the Old Testament priest. In fact, we, we move in 11, every priest stands, and, and that repeated sacrifice over and over again, which can never take away sins. And now Christ has for one time taken away all sins and perfected us. That's a, that's a hallelujah chorus moment. Yes. Yes. Uh, no, that's excellent. Uh, yeah, th those verses are worth memorizing and meditating on uh, uh, as, uh, as you have time. Let's look at the next section here, 15 to 18. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering uh, for sin. So the, remember chapter, if you flip back to chapter 8 real quick. If you remember chapter 8, and he basically, you know, bookends chapter 8 and chapter 10 with a quotation from Jeremiah 31, uh, this, this promise. And um, if you remember the, the promise in, in chapter 8 verses, it's that long quotation, 8-8. Eight, eight, um, just look real quick at 8-8. Eight, eight. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, uh, not like the covenant that I made with the fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. And then he says he will 
put the law in their heart and transform them. And so he, he really bookends this whole section from 8 to 10 with two quotations from Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant. Uh, and uh, it, it's pretty amazing because this is where God's going to come in and transform our heart. He's going to put his law on our minds. He's going to make us desire to obey, and he will be our God, and we shall be his people. Um, thoughts on that amazing promise? Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about the forgiveness of sins that we have. It's, it's a phrase that we can just throw around, like in Christian circles, and just sort of just are used to that phrase. But even that phrase should bring uh, amazement. One, one guy, again, Tom Schreiner said that like, we should enjoy the, the, the forgiveness of sins that we have. I mean, if we're not walking in unrepentant sins, we should enjoy this forgiveness that we have. But so often, I think maybe we don't, or we just don't think of the weight of, of forgiveness of sins. And I think we, you have to put sort of meat on the bone sometimes. For me, it's listen, like hearing conversion stories. It can be just uh, seemingly average conversion stories just are helpful. They're moving. I, I was listening to these two pastors talk, and both of them had pastors' dads as well, and they both became Christians before the age of seven. And they were both just recounting about age seven. Uh, one was talking about his father explained the gospel to him over, the, over breakfast at the table, and they both were moved talking about their conversion. Like one guy was, I think, seven, one guy was maybe six, and they were both just moved. They both, their voices were like cracking, saying, I believe that's when God began, began the work. It's moving. And I think of a famous Christian apologist who was in high school, not a Christian, and there was a, a girl who was a genuine believer in, in his class, and she was filled with deep joy, and he couldn't make sense of her life. Like, why are you, and he just asked her one day, ask her for the reason of the hope that's in her. Like, why are you so joyful? And she said, well, it's because I'm a Christian, because, I, you know, I know God. I have peace with God. Sin's forgiven. I don't know exactly what she said, but this kind of took him by surprise. So that, that made him start to research Christianity. And he, he began reading through the Gospels. And he spent months researching Christianity. And it came that night where he, he turns from sins, trusted Christ, and he runs outside, and he looks up at the stars and says, I know God. Like, I have peace with God. And it's like, that, when I hear something like that, it reminds me like how amazing it is that our sins have been forgiven. We should be enjoying this. This should fill us with joy. We should be like the, the girl in his class, filled with joy, where people are thinking, what, what's, what's the hope that you have that, I, well, my sins have been forgiven. I have peace with God. So even just, these are amazing verses that we kind of need to soak on to feel the, the, the weight of it, to have joy in them. Philippians that you're covering on Sunday, or you guys are covering on Sunday, I mean, just, uh, just speaks of that joy. And that joy is a result of, I think you see it in Paul. And, and goodness gracious, did, did that guy suffer for his faith. But he had great joy. And, and he, he loved his pastoral role with his various congregations. And, and it's reflected in his writings, particularly in Philippians. Yeah. You just see it oozes out of the yeah. pages mm -hmm. of his letter. Mm -hmm. There's another pastor just, you know, with the law being written on our hearts. I think his name is John Joseph from the D.C. area, and he told his, his story at uh, Together for the Gospel years ago. And uh, I never forgot his story. I've gone back and rewatched the video repeatedly because it's just so good. But he gets up there and on the stage. He goes, okay, here, here's the deal. I was, a, uh, I was a cocaine user and cocaine dealer in my 20s. Uh, he said, I was involved in every kind of debauchery you can imagine, like sexual promiscuity, all kinds of stuff. I don't remember what all it was. And uh, he just said, my, my life was a complete disaster. He said he, he was at Blockbuster 
Just take a second and remember that, the glory days. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, he's he at the yellow and blue blockbuster and he's walking down the aisles and he found uh, one of, you know, you know Bill Maher, the, the famous atheist Bill Maher, uh, his religious or whatever, you know, ridiculous religion idea where he's making fun of all religion and Jesus. And he, he rented the uh, DVD of, of that documentary and went home and watched it. And he said he was annoyed by how obviously Bill Maher, as an atheist, it was so obvious he said that he was biased and he was misrepresenting the Christian people he interviewed. Like he edits it in a choppy way that makes people look totally stupid and it's not real, it's fake. And so he goes, you know what? I don't think that was an accurate representation of the other side. So he went online and looked up Christian apologists, found a Christian apologist and started watching him. And uh, he said over the next several months, his worldview was completely dismantled by this Christian apologist. And then he stumbled onto this website called Desiring God. Ever heard of that website before? He said, this is this, is, this is weird-looking old guy, he said, preaching, this John Piper guy. And, and he said, he started listening to John Piper's sermons, and he said that uh, finally, uh, he even knows the date, I think. He pulled up, I think it was Piper's second sermon on John 3.16. I think it was his wow. second sermon on John, he has like, probably like 15 sermons on John 3.16. But I think it was his second John 3.16 sermon. He said he pulled up his internet browser, hit play, and I've seen the sermon too. I went back and rewatched it just for this point. But he, he's sitting there at his computer, and Piper starts the sermon by saying, saying, Lord, please bring someone as I, as I preach from the darkness to the light. And then John Joseph's voice cracks and he says, our father being faithful and true uh, delivered on that prayer request because me watching this in my you know, apartment or house or whatever, watching this, he said during the first five minutes of the sermon, he said he was overcome with a sense of his sin. And he said he felt the weight of perishing, like, you know, like he said, I, I, I was heading towards disaster that will be talked about later in this chapter. He said, and the Lord changed my heart right there watching the sermon. He was converted, and then he ended up joining a really great church in the D.C. area, was baptized, and today he's a pastor of a church plant in the, in the Baltimore, D.C. area today. And I follow him on Twitter. So there you go. <laughs> this guy is great. He's a, he's a believer now. But, I mean, the story is just, it's very moving because the law went from not being written on the heart to obviously being written on yeah, his heart. Just Grant Crane, a, while, a good while ago, a couple of years ago, asked me for various talks that I like or something, and I, and I included that conversion of John Joseph, and he said that was his favorite thing. Like, that really, like, stirred him. Just It's like three minutes or something. Yep. It's so short, but, man, it is, it is worth watching for sure. Wow. All right, verse 18 again. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And now let's jump into this next section, 19 to 25. If, Scott, if can, I could, that's oh, sort, yeah, yeah. that sort of ends the doctrinal yes. part of the... And now we get to the tough one. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> anyway, we'll move right along. Yes, that, now he's going to start getting into uh, both the positive and negative motivations for following Jesus. Right. Scott, can you read 19 yeah. to 25? Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me just jump in here with verse 19 lest we pass over this too quickly. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Just stop for a second. We're so used to this that we almost don't even hear it as surprising. It's like, well, of course. Imagine the Jewish Christian audience here. Imagine the Jewish audience. 
for 1,400 years, am I getting that right? For, for 1,400 years of their history, this is a place that no one goes except one guy once a year, the holy places. No one has confidence to enter the holy places. Are you insane? Are you crazy? No one does that. Uh, it is a hand-picked person by God once a year. So it's almost like saying, you want to go to the moon? Like what, like 12 people have been to the moon or something? It's like, yeah, common people don't go there. That's something that a few people at, at one point in the past, they went there and it's a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage. We don't go to the moon. Someone goes to the moon on behalf of humanity, right? We don't go, they plant the flag, the American flag, you know, held up by the bar because there's no, there's no air. And they, they plant the flag and we, oh, look, it's our country. Woo we went to the moon through our representative or something, but we don't go to the moon. That's not an option for us. Well, that's the Jewish mindset. I don't go into the holy places. Someone else does that for me. And it's a very, very small group of people. You got, the high, you got the priests who go in daily to the holy place, but then you have the high priest once a year into the most holy place, and he does it on fear of death, right, going in there. And now this author just throws it open and says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. I mean, we should be ashamed of our lack of surprise over this. Our sh we are just not shocked by this. He's saying we get to go to the moon. Like we, we get to go into the presence of Almighty God boldly with the blood of Jesus right now. When you, when you bow to pray, you are right there, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You have access that was only dreamed about by, by, by believers for well over a millennium. And he just goes, Jesus, has, when he died, there was an earthquake in Jerusalem. You remember what that earthquake did? It tore that curtain that was inches thick and weighed hundreds and hundreds of pounds. It tore the thing from top to bottom, God himself through an earthquake, ripping it in half and saying, guess what? Everyone is welcome, but only through one person's blood, not the blood of lambs, not through Levi, but through the blood of Jesus. Anybody and everybody. So you, you've got some, some, the cocaine addicted drug addict, right? The guy, John Joseph, he now has access into the holy places. He's been to the moon, right? He, he is there. The Holy Spirit is in him, cleaned him, blood has washed him. He has full access in a way that not even the high priest in all of his vestments could have done for more than about 15 minutes once a year. And, and now anytime you want, you can bow your head and you're right there. God is right there. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Just astonishing to think about this kind of access that we have. Thoughts on that? John Owen, uh, who wrote a lengthy commentary on, on Hebrews some time ago, uh, said this is this is the great mystery of this exhortation section. I mean, the, 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 how, how this could happen, how this could manifest itself, because we've already talked about the law and the inadequacy. How faithful they were to pray. If you had an issue, let them know they are going to pray. And they were going to be faithfully praying every day. When, when Sarah texted about praying for Michael and the NICU, like we're praying every day for Michael. And that, they were dead serious. Talk about encouragement from that. But I'm, just, I'm thinking about encourage. We can also encourage by example, which you mentioned Vic Doss. You mentioned Dad. Uh, it's powerful just being around other, other Christians like, like this guy and just soaking in. We're encouraged by, by seeing a guy remaining faithful. I mean, so many people are not. But then we can encourage people by, by words. Like words have incredible power. And I'll just one story on this. Uh, this is from over four years ago. I was asked to speak at, at a men's conference from a coworker of mine from another church. And it was outside. And people were outside. And it's not always easy. To... Was it hotter than this room? <laughs> <laughs> it was cooler, I think. <laughs> than this room, and the wind was blowing, and I had a stand, and I had notes in my Bible, and I had a microphone, and I was trying to hold everything in place, and the wind is blowing, and this, this is my first time, like, speaking uh, at length publicly in front of people. It was, oh man, that was a challenge and a half, uh, trying to hold everything together, and then I, I was talking about a God, being a godly man and all this, all this stuff, 
And I talked about example. I talked about John Patton, of course. And then I ended, I want to talk about dad at the end. So I, but I wanted to re- keep it kind of a secret who, who I was talking about. So I just kind of, this, this person who's had a huge influence on me, he grew up in a non-Christian home. And I just kind of built it up like that, got to the Navy. And then I, I told his conversion. And then I said, it's my dad. And I kind of ended on that crescendo. Well, after it was over, various people came up to me and talked to me. And this one guy came up to me and I can still, I can see him right now. It's over four years. I can see him standing in front of me. He encouraged me in just a few minutes. And this is, this is what he said. This is the basics of what he said. Maybe not exactly word for word, but I remember the, the basics of what he said was this. Because I talked about my dad. He said, I, I know your father. He said, I've heard your dad preach many times. He said, at Faith Presbyterian Church, he said, your dad is the greatest preacher I've ever heard. He said, I'm, I'm not kidding. He said, he's the best preacher I've ever heard. When I listened to him preach, he just he held my attention. like I was captive by his preaching. And that's, a, that's about all he said. But I'm crying now because of the encouragement of this one brother over four years ago took the time to just give a few words of encouragement. So we, we underestimate, I think, the power that we can do to, to help others, to spur others on to, to love and good deeds. Just our words have so much power. So I think we should be looking for opportunities uh, looking for evidences of grace in people, which is not hard to see. Like Alan McCannon, who serves so well, it's not hard to see. This, this brother is so gifted, and we just say, Alan, man, the Lord is gift. Like Jerry is so good at this about pouring encouragement on, on others. So I just we're withholding something so powerful when we fail to to encourage. And I think one of the good things about uh, I say good things about COVID is that it's forced us to to examine other ways of communication like Zoom and, yep. and FaceTime and stuff like that. There's other ways to exhort yeah. and encourage yeah. each other. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can pick up the phone and call Andy Felt, who's taking an order to somebody. That's right. That's right. That, no, that's a, it's incredible the, the ways we're, I mean, just remember with Philippians this week, 800 miles to say, hey, I'm, I'm still alive, right? <laughs> hey guys, I, Epaphroditus made it. 800 mile trip from Epaphroditus to get that news. We can just sort of text a message and it's, it's just incredible what we have. So, uh, okay, so just, just for the sake of time, we're, we're going to shift into the really, really intense part. And, and the way he segues in it is with verse 25. And I'm, I, maybe this is a way we don't think about this verse, but I, I think this is real. Look at, look at verse 25 again. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, the flip side to the command not to neglect meeting together, this is not talking, I don't think, about churches who are just altogether not meeting. I think he's talking about individual Christians who are members of churches who are not going to the gatherings, right? We've, verse 25 is often like, you know, make sure you go to church on Sunday, you know, woohoo, like it could be good for you, it could help you out. This is so much, this is one of the heaviest statements about being a committed member of a local church you can imagine. So can I just say it as provocatively as I think he's saying it right here? If you walk away from the local church, you're walking away from Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. He's saying if, you, if your heart is growing dull to the local church, you're like, ah, I don't really want to go this week. I don't want to go this month. I don't want to go this summer. I don't want to go this year. If that's the attitude, he says, you're in danger of perdition, as in eternal punishment. 
And you say, what? What kind of? I, I was, you know, I prayed the prayer when I was eight. What are you talking about? I've been, a, I've been, a, I've been baptized more than once. I'm a, my family is Christian. I've been a Christian. What are you talking about? And he says, no, l- listen, if your heart over time grows dull to the people of God, that is a sign that your heart is growing dull to the God of the people, right? So j- just like if we don't like the body of Christ, that means we've got a problem with the head right? If we're distancing ourselves from the body, we're distancing ourselves from the head. You can't have, um, you can't have Jesus without His body in, in this life and in this world. And so, if we grow callous to the local church and the gathering together, it's a scary sign. Just be straight up honest with you. There are, there are times where, where people… And I, I, this is, by the way, footnote for anyone wondering. I'm not talking about people who, because of COVID-19, have health reasons why they cannot be at church. This has nothing to do with that group of people. We love those people. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who don't want to be around the people of God because they—think about it. If you don't want to be around the people of God, we've all been in these stages. Why is it I don't want to be around a lot of Christians? It's because my heart is starting to fall in love with my sin. And I know if I get around Gage and I talk to Gage, Jesus is going to come up in the conversation. And it's going to annoy my flesh, right? Right? This is the way it is. With, if, I, if I'm talking to Scott on the phone, friend on the phone, if I'm having these kinds of conversations, I want to be arm's length away from these guys if that's going on because I, I want to enjoy my sin. And so there is, a, there is a connected relationship between loving the local church and the people of God and the opposite being loving my sin. And at the end of the day, we've got to choose one or the other. We're either going to be committed to God's people and holiness and pursuing Jesus together, stirring each other on, or we are going to choose our sin and isolate ourselves from the people of God. And what you will see is this. People start falling away from the local church. They start not going to the small group. They, not, they don't want to hang out. They don't want to talk on the phone. They isolate, isolate, isolate. Suddenly, you find out they've got a whole other friend group now. And where are they? Oh, they're at the bar on Thursday night, Friday night, till 2 in the morning. Oh, Okay, so what's going on here? You, you've got friendships now that are developing that are going to entertain the passions of the flesh, not fight against the passions of the flesh. And so this is no small thing to kind of have on your wall to say, you know, don't neglect the church. No, he's saying this is a matter of eternal life and eternal destruction, how we treat the body of Christ on earth. And, and that's why he says, right after saying don't neglect the body of Christ, verse 26 says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Listen to these words. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's in the Old Testament. That's Deuteronomy 17. Yes. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God it has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Outraged the spirit of grace. I don't think grace. I've ever heard that before in the New Testament or in the right. Bible. Outraging the Holy Spirit. Yikes. Yes. And then he says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. So, some thoughts here about these incredibly heavy warnings. I think you, you nailed the, the, the importance of the, of the local body. I think we, it starts with drifting. I think it starts in chapter 2, it says, don't drift. A pretty powerful, I think it's one of the first warning verses, don't drift. Because mm-hmm. when we drift, we neglect. I mean, are we neglect and then we drift? Uh, we, we don't like somebody or we 
don't want to get up that early or <laughs> even at three o'clock yes. in the afternoon. <laughs> and, and so we start with neglecting. And then once you start neglecting, and you've done this with other things, we've done this with other things, then you just reject. I don't, I don't need that anymore. I don't, and that's, that's scary. And I think that's the purpose of the, of the warning verses. Uh, I struggle with this sometimes. It either softens our hearts or hardens our hearts. The warning passages. The warning passages, yes. yes. Yeah, I mean, one thing that Al, Al Mohler said that I thought was just a weighty sentence, he said, Hebrews 10.26 is a sobering reminder that hell is full of people who have a clear understanding of the gospel but never bowed the knee to Christ as king. I just thought that was so weighty. Like people who, who, who've grown up maybe in church, who've been around church, but drifted slowly away, it's just a terrifying thing. It's a, just a weighty thing that should drive us to pray, I feel like, for people that, that we know and love, that, that, that they understand the gospel at least, but they never bow, bowed the knee. And the second thing, you did a great job of the, the local church, and I'm just thinking we should love the local church. I know the, the COVID-19 people, they hate it. that they can't. Like Jerry just hates it. He misses it so much, and he can't wait to get back. We can't wait for him to come back. But when everything is normal again, it's like this is where you want to be. You want to make sacrifices. Just uh, my dad's conversion story, which I was listening to not too long ago. He talked about like he didn't grow up in church at all. He talked about things that changed after his conversion. Was he loved the Bible and he loved gathering with the people of God. Like that was his favorite time of, of week was gathering with the people of God. And that's how it should be. We should want to. We desperately need each other. We should want to to gather, even make sacrifices to to gather because we so need the encouragement of the body. Okay, so just a couple of just really. Just shocking statements here, and, and again, I, I'm just warning you again, the, next, the last few minutes here are going to be, it's pretty intense. Uh, so, um, just let me just say some critical things. So, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, did us, I think, a pretty big disservice, and this is controversial, but I think, it's, I think, I think this is correct to critique him here. C.S. Lewis um, knew that, I think, in his setting, the way hell had been typically understood was often mocked, and so he came up with sort of a new way of talking about hell that I don't think is helpful. And if you read his books, you'll see these in many of his books. And what C.S. Lewis basically says is that hell is, the, the, the lock on the door of hell is locked from the inside. That we basically choose hell ourselves, that we inflict hell on ourselves by our sin and our selfishness, and that we sort of lock ourselves in hell and we lock the door and we throw the key away, and that God doesn't do any of the punishing. God just sort of step, steps back and we punish ourselves with guilt and sin and such things. Now, the, the, the grain of truth is it is true that a self-centered heart heading into eternity is going to be a miserable individual. But there is far more going on than self-inflicted punishment in, in the doctrine. From beginning to end, Sodom and Gomorrah did not rain down fire and sulfur on itself. You see, God sent the fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah as a type of hell. It's a picture of hell. It's fire and sulfur language. Noah's flood was not created by the people outside the boat. It was created by God against the people. And so, hell is God, I'm just going to say this, it is God actively punishing righteously sinners who have failed to bow the, knee to bow the knee to Jesus with eternal conscious torment. Revelation 2010, other verses say they will be tormented day and night forever ever and, and ever. ever. Just absolutely staggering words. I understand why people look at that doctrine and just have a hard time just fully understanding that, but I, I do believe un, unswervingly that is what Scripture and Jesus especially taught. And God Himself does the punishing. If you look again at verse 30, for we know Him, God, who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. 
It is a fearful or terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And just to make everyone think I'm totally crazy here, let me just go all the way. You've all heard of Jonathan Edwards' infamous sermon, haven't you? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. The most mocked sermon probably in Christian history, right? You can just… People make fun of this sermon all day long. If you, take an, if you took an English literature class in 10th or 11th grade, you probably read the excerpt from the sermon, and everyone in the room was like, what kind of barbarian preached this way? Well, I would just… Tell, I've, I've read and listened to people read the sermon numerous times. I've probably heard the sermon six, seven, eight times in my life, and I will tell you, uh, you will be hard-pressed to find a sentence in that sermon that is not from Scripture. I'm just being straight up with you. So, the sermon is named after this verse. It is a terrifying thing to fall, not out of, but, sorry, C.S. Lewis, into the hands of the living God. It is God Himself who is what is terrifying, and God is righteous to do this. And now, here's, here's the, uh, the important part, I think, to remember here. Um, we, we, by the way, we, we got no problem with, with justice, do we? If someone breaks into your house and steals something, or someone hurts someone you love, if there's a rapist or a murderer who harms a family member, believe me, you want justice, don't you? You want there to be a good judge and a jury with sanity, right, that's not blinded by something, and they are going to bring down the verdict that is just so that the rapist and murderer goes to prison or gets capital punishment if he's worthy of it, if he's a, if he's a, a horrific person. Well, we want justice to come down on our enemies, but we want mercy for ourselves, right? And here's the thing, God is both merciful and He is just, and in the gospel, this terror that we look at in this passage for those who trust Christ is something we will never experience, because Jesus fell into the hands of the living God on the cross. He was ripped apart on the cross. He had nails through His wrists. He had God's dark judgment come down on Him. He drank the cup of justice dry. And so, for us who know Jesus, not a word of this text will come true in us because it came true in Jesus for us. Instead, we have boldness and access into the most holy place, boldness before the throne of grace. But for those who harden their hearts and drift away and ultimately reject the, the work of Jesus, I mean, Put it this way, I'm quoting another person here. Heaven is encountering God with a mediator. Hell is encountering God with a rejected mediator. Th those are our two options. It's the same God, but, but is, are we going to take advantage of that mediator that stands in front of us? Yeah, I mean, it's so, it's so weighty. I mean, I just feel like we probably don't think about hell like we should. Uh, I just think we kind of push it to the side, and I think it's good that we dwell on it, think about it. Even just when you're talking about that, reminded me of First Thessalonians, I think, where it's, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. And just thinking that we deserve wrath unremittingly, and yet nothing in our life as believers, we won't taste even the slightest drop of God's wrath. It's incredible. I mean, we have to come to a place where we know that we deserve hell. Like, that's exact. I know that that's, that's where I deserve to go, and then we, then we appreciate the sacrifice of Christ more, and we're amazed that we don't even taste any wrath in our whole life. It's, it's amazing. Uh, but I, I think uh, our world is, like, blinded to eternal things. I remember one day at, at my work a few years ago, people were talking about, like, how they, how they wanted to die, and they didn't want to die like this, and it would be terrible to die like this, and all the, this type of thing. I want to die in my sleep, and they're just talking about it. I'm just, I wanted to scream out loud, it doesn't matter how you die, it matters where you go after you die. 
And if you're not covered by the blood of Jesus, you're going to fall into the hands of, of the living God. It's horrible, terrible. But if you, if you know Jesus and you die the most horrible way a man imaginable, like if you were actually eaten by cannibals, you will hear Jesus say, well done. Like it matters if you're covered by the blood of Jesus. And just our culture just doesn't think about eternity and certainly doesn't think about a just God that they're going to have to stand before. Uh, so I think it's, it's healthy for us. It does spur us on. It is that stick that hits us and spurs us on, I think, to, to care about lost people, uh, to appreciate salvation. I think, as you mentioned, uh, 25 sort of leads into this, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more you see the day, the day drawing near, the day is that day of judgment, that day when Jesus will come back. And it's, uh, as Jerry's always saying, we're one day closer than we've ever been before. And I just recently lost um, another friend uh, uh, that I went to college with and uh, a couple weeks ago. And, um, you know, it makes the idea of that day a lot more real at, at my age. Uh, I think when you're 22 or 32, it's not so necessarily real, but... You don't know. We don't know. But, but God does. And that's why these verses are so urgent. There's an urgency about them. There's a warning there. Um, it's, it's amazing that just th- this paragraph, and I've taught on it before in the past, and it's just a, every line of it is just so intense with what it is saying. Uh, the, the fact that the Holy Spirit is outraged at the one who rejects the atonement of Christ, knowing what they're doing. I mean, that is just astonishing language. Okay, now for this, we're almost out of time, so we, we will wrap up here. We've got about four minutes, and we'll just do this last part quickly. Uh, would you follow along here? This is it 10, picks up. 1030, yeah. <laughs> this goes back. The, the author wants to uh, encourage them about former evidence of grace in their life when they first uh, were converted. Verse 20, Verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward." For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So just in these last couple minutes, the author says, the incredible motivation is the Holy of Holies is open in Jesus. His flesh has been torn like the curtain, and we have access through Jesus. This is incredible. Then he says, if we walk away from Jesus, there is a terrifying future awaiting us that is just. Then he says, pastoral again, but I feel pretty good about a lot of you guys. He comes along and says, listen, when you guys first came to know the gospel, when you were enlightened, you suffered joyfully the loss of property, and you showed real confidence in Jesus. He says, listen, 
keep doing it more and more. Like, go, think about what the Lord brought you through years ago and do that more. As, as suffering and persecution comes, respond the way you already did. I believe you can do that more and more as you go forward. And so I think it's a, it's a closing encouragement to hold on and to continue to bear fruit like they did early on after they had trusted in Christ, or at least said that they had trusted in Christ. Hebrews, as we know, is, is been, was written during a time of suffering, and I did a little historical research, and Claudius actually expelled the Jews from Rome in 51, as early as 51, it was, and it was over Crestus. They, the historian Suetonius says it was about Christ. So the Romans couldn't distinguish between Christians and Jews sometimes, so they just expelled the whole lot in 51. So from 51... Uh, Jews were persecuted along with Christians until 66 when they actually revolted and brought the Romans in, which ultimately destroyed Jerusalem. So suffering was on the horizon for sure. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews is simply warning the people don't to endure the persecution. Uh, take care of one another. Don't throw away your confidence, this boldness that we have in the in the. Uh, sufferings of Christ and resurrection of Christ because um, you're going to be persecuted and that's, that's a, 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 a time when some do walk away, neglect, mm -hmm. desert. Scott, any closing thoughts? Yeah, I mean, just the fact that he says, recall those former days in verse 32, when after you were enlightened, you endured. Like, Piper thinks maybe that's like the conversion, like the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shone in your heart. So thinking back on uh, God's saving grace and saving us, and then our zeal at the beginning, like so often when we first become Christians, it's like this incredible zeal. Just thinking on that and God's grace, and that should motivate us now to kind of, Lord, rekindle that same zeal in me. I mean, I, I, I think it's just a great practice to think back. There was a time when we didn't know God, didn't care about the Bible, didn't th care about the things of God, and then God breaks in and does a work. And just reflecting on that, I think, is really helpful to just even spur us on again to, to serve the Lord more faithfully now. All right, would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, as we think about, especially here at the end, the topic of judgment, uh, Lord, there's a weightiness to that. Uh, Lord, we, we do know, if we know you, we, we have felt at different times the justice of your judgment against us personally. I know I have just felt it on so many occasions that you would be absolutely righteous to, to blot me out forever. And yet, Lord, we know that as immense and as eternal as your just wrath is in Scripture, we know that the massiveness of that is the very price Jesus paid to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So as we think about the staggering uh, intensity of your just judgment against sinners, let us see in that the price and the love of Jesus who endured all of that judgment for all who will ever turn and trust in you on the cross on Good Friday. And Lord, help that to be an endless thing that just fascinates us that Jesus endured that agony, that immensity of judgment, that cup of unimaginable divine, divine justice that we deserve. And now today, we no longer have the cup of judgment in our hands, but we have instead the cup of salvation. And we drink from that cup every moment of every day, even when we are not even conscious of it, and frankly, even when we sin. So God, thank you for the cup of salvation that Jesus has given to us. Thank you that Jesus took the cup of our judgment and that now for all of eternity, if we know you, 
We will never exhaust the grace and kindness that you lavish on us through the person and work of your son, Jesus. And we thank you for this book of Hebrews that we've been able to study uh, this, these past few months. And I pray that you bless this study to all of us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If, if, if you're wondering what about chapters 11 through 13, uh, during the early months of COVID, we recorded a bunch of sessions where we went through 11 to 13, and some of those have been posted. We're planning to post the rest of them before too long. So th those will be on the YouTube channel and also on our podcast, but we did those early, and then we're doing, we did the rest later. So we are done with Hebrews, and thank you guys for being a part of it.